What we most care about is entering stuff in the most immutable, hardened record imaginable. And right now, that's Bitcoin. Hello there from Bedford. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I have an interview with Daniel Buckner, the head of Microsoft's decentralized identity program. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. So first up today, we have the future of Bitcoin and financial services, which is BlockFi. Have you checked out their new mobile app yet? They really did an amazing job with this. Everything you expect from BlockFi packed into your phone. They have a very quick and easy way to sign up. You can get started in just a few minutes, allowing you to earn interest, borrow USD, and instantly access your portfolio. You can also open up a BlockFi interest account, which I am a customer of, and you can earn interest on your Bitcoin. And using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. The app enables funds to be transferred directly from a crypto wallet into your BlockFi account, and they've also got loads more stuff coming soon. Amazing work, BlockFi. If you want to find out more, head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we have the mighty Kraken. And why is that the best place for you to buy your Bitcoin? Firstly, their security is world-class. They are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange in the market. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, they can help you with any issues, wherever you are, whoever you are. They have the most comprehensive suite of tools available for buying Bitcoin. You've got Kraken.com, where it could not be easier to sign up and buy Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option for you covered. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. All right, so on to the show today, and I've got Daniel Buckner back on the show, someone I got to know over the last year after firstly meeting him out in New York. And not only have I got an interest in what he's doing over at Microsoft with decentralized identities on Bitcoin, which itself is amazing that Microsoft are doing something with Bitcoin, but Daniel is a very kind of hardened libertarian, but also someone I find quite practical rather than just shouting status at people all the time. So he comes back with practical arguments. I've learned a lot from him. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. So with the announcement this week that Microsoft's decentralized identity system has launched, I asked Daniel to come back on the show and just explain the update, what's been going on with it, what they've been building, and why they decided to build it on Bitcoin. And because the world is going a little bit fucking crazy at the moment, I thought it'd be good to have a chat to Daniel about libertarianism, the response to the coronavirus, and all these crazy protests that are going on worldwide. I just thought it was a good time to catch up with him on both subjects. If you've got any questions about this show, do feel free to hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, if you know about Stephen Nuchin, and you know he's a bit of a dick, I've released the first two episodes of my kind of deep dive into him. Firstly, looking at his background and time at Goldman Sachs, and then my second episode, looking at how he formed a bank called One West and essentially became a foreclosure machine. They're on my other show, Defiance, which is available at defiance.news if you want to check that out outside of that yeah if you've got any questions you can reach out to me it's hello at what bitcoin did.com daniel how are you man great great how are you doing yeah i'm doing well thank you good to see you again uh, a year since we first spoke i've got loads of things i want to talk to you about there's yeah we could talk about bitcoin and identity and microsoft but there's lots of other crazy shit going on i want to talk to you about but let's let's do the microsoft stuff first some people wouldn't have heard our first interview because it was a year ago and my show's grown since and i think it's quite fascinating that you as this kind of ancap libertarian is within microsoft doing the bitcoin thing so let's give a bit bit of a background to the people who wouldn't have heard that before just explain what you, what it is you do in this 
secret dark world of Microsoft. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at Microsoft, I work on decentralized identity. Um, that's, you know, a subset of identity where, you know, people uh, should be in control of, you know, all aspects of that, which is like their identifiers or data. That work started a while back at Microsoft. You know, I um, had worked at Microsoft, you know, in the earlier years when, you know, before Google Chrome was around, you know, we kind of believed in their ethos of, you know, free and open web. And throughout working, you know, in my position in Mozilla, I sort of fell in love with the idea of, of decentralizing both identity and applications. And it was something that I started working on there um, and actually got the ability to transition over to Microsoft and work on it full time. So that was sort of the, the tale of that. Where are we in, in the world of identity now? Because I myself have got various identities online i have a facebook identity and a linkedin identity and a google identity and now i've got an apple identity which seems to be slightly better than the previous i've just suggested so where is the world of identity now and where is it headed yeah i mean i think right now you know we've had we've had the same identity systems really for quite a while in terms of consumers right we've had oauth we've had you know social logins that sort of thing for a while and it's it's i wouldn't say stagnated completely but it hasn't changed very much um, you know, a few, a few providers of identity really are uh, who you get your digital IDs from that you log into all your applications and services online. And those IDs are primarily just, you know, they're, they're leased to you, whether it's an email address or, you know, some other form of authentication, like an app's username, um, even your Twitter handle, for instance, as we know, is certainly leased to you. And these are identifiers that can be taken from you at any time for any number of reasons, whether it be, you know, a social provider doesn't like what you wrote and you're suspended or it's removed, or, you know, maybe they, a company just goes out of business. I mean, there's been email addresses for various companies that just, you know, they go out of business and you're done. And if you don't get your stuff off there in time, you know, you lose access to things. Um, and that's, you know, it's all well and good while your identifiers are tied to things like, you know, your cat pictures that you want to post to Facebook and everything. It's all fun games. Until someone says, well, you know, we're moving everything to a digital world, which we, which we will, just like, you know, we don't have paper email, we have, we have email now. And when, when those things happen, you know, proofs like, who, do you own your car, the deed to your house, all that stuff. When that starts getting digitized and tied to some identifier, man, you really, you really better be an identifier that, uh, that can't be taken from you at a whim by either a company or, you know, some bad actor. Because that would be, a, that would be pretty scary, in my opinion. So if I was to get banned by my, uh, no, let's say Facebook, if Facebook was to ban me for whatever reason, say they, they didn't like my podcast, they didn't like my content, that mean I would not be able to use the Facebook login that I've used for, say, a number of websites. I, I suddenly couldn't use that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reality today, right? They're, they're going to cut you off from these systems, and they've done it in the past. I mean, there's people who, we, I think there's people who we know who have disappeared from Twitter uh, altogether mm -hmm. from this. And, and they just, you know, they make up the rules as they go along, and sometimes they're applied unevenly and unfairly. And I, I just don't think that we should have anyone really in control of people's digital self. Um, we should be in control of that. So I think the model should change. Um, to be something where you own your, your identifier. Let's just think about it as a Twitter handle, even though it's not a, a friendly little name like that in technical speak. Um, just think about it like that, like a handle. You should own that handle. And if you want to happen to log into Twitter as an application or you know, Facebook as an application, sure, they can curate messages that you happen to post with that application. 
Um, but they can't cut your ID off from existing in the world. All the connections you've made and you know, friends you have, those connections shouldn't be severed from you. And I would actually even go so far as to argue, though, in the long term, that even your social posts and things you do actually should be your own. And those apps should more or less be a reflection of what you post yourself and data you retain. So is this some ways in taking us beyond just the idea of a decentralized identity more towards a decentralized web? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, Microsoft's not the first company to work on this. Certainly, you know, even my work earlier on at Mozilla wasn't the first, you know, entrance into this stuff. Um, you know, I've, I've partnered with a ton of people over you know, the course of this, and there's lots of people who are interested in doing it. But really, fundamentally, you're right. This is about decentralizing the web. And the only way to do it successfully is to decentralize the sort of the original sin, which was the identity piece. We don't have any native identity today, just like we don't have any native digital currency, as Jack talks about, you know, when it comes to Bitcoin. And those two things, primarily, more than anything else, will, will realize benefits in the decentralization of society that we have never seen. And it all starts sort of at the ID, right? Like if you, if you don't own your ID in the world, nothing is really attributable to you. Um, you can't really have a verified presence in the world. Like, if, you know, you're getting scammers imposs- you know, impersonating you all the time on all these channels. It's really hard. And, and you deserve to have that presence in the digital world, just like you are a person in the real world. Well, yeah, I've got it with Instagram. I've got this same person every couple of weeks. They create a new account. They replicate all my posts. They then start following my friends, and they try to sell them a Bitcoin mining operation. And they succeeded at least one case I know. So my neighbor lives mm. opposite me. He's a kid. I didn't even know he was listening to my podcast. He's 18 years old. And I bumped into him the other day because he goes running in the park. And I bumped into him, asked him how he was. He said, yeah. And he said, uh, I've been listening to your podcast, blah, blah, blah. And he was a bit coy. And he said, oh, um, yeah, I got scammed recently. I was like, oh, why? What happened? He said, oh, somebody added me on Instagram. I thought it was you. And uh, I was talking to you. And I thought I was. And... I paid three thousand pound into a Bitcoin mining operation, and it was like, what? Wow. I mean, you're talking what's that? Like four thousand dollars, nearly. And every single time I report them, and they close it down, they come up with a new one. One time they actually banned me and let the scammer continue. Um, and there's nothing <laughs> I can do about it. Yeah, can you believe that they actually banned me? Uh, which I had to then go through somebody I know at Facebook to speak to somebody at Instagram to get my account back. But I can't stop this. And I know it's not just happened to me. I think I saw either Cameron or Tyler Winklevoss, uh, Winklevoss say on uh, Facebook the other day, he's going through exactly the same. And I'm guessing if I had a single identity attributable to me, people would be able to verify that themselves. And they would know. Yeah, and, and even independently of any of these organizations, right? So even if they don't play ball, if you assert your identity and it's backed by strong cryptography, someone you know browsing an application on the web could validate it themselves. And I think that's what we really want to empower people to do is remove the you know this pressure point from gatekeepers because a lot of them are not even incentivized to care. I mean, unless you're at the highest levels, right? Unless you're like the president of some country or something, maybe they'll put a special task force on it to take care of it for them. But, you know, there, there's no money in it in a, in a lot of ways um, for many organizations. Now for other organizations, and I'll, I'll give you a little clue about why Microsoft might be interested in all this, because it's, it's not all, you know, just about being a you know, good person and doing the right thing. Think about things like LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn actually is about trust. Like LinkedIn is about, I, I browse someone's profile 
and I'm trying to find out what the resume is. And the whole point of looking at his resume, hopefully, is that this is relatively accurate information. So when people put up, you know, scam type profiles, it hurts LinkedIn. I know this happened. My wife works at Yahoo, um, which is now Verizon. And a while back, I think they had a CEO that managed to get into the CEO position and a, a good portion of his resume was completely fabricated. And, the, you know, they just took it at face value, I suppose. I mean, they didn't look, look into it. And this guy ends up leaving the company. He's a CEO of a major company. And this is hilarious. I mean, there's no reason why these things can't be validated and verifiable. That's an amazing story. <laughs> um, but wider than that, what, why is Microsoft interested in this? Because what, what's the value to Microsoft in, in working on this? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things, right? So, so there's a lot of things you just can't do in identity safely unless people own their own IDs. And there's, there's actually some legal strictures to this, like in, in various locales, you know, public institutions are sort of prohibited or it's very difficult to get them to assign digital proofs or digitize things to identifiers that are centralized. So, you know, they can't sign moneyed special deals with, say, just LinkedIn or just any you know email provider or something like that that might have an OAuth connect an OAuth integration, so it actually unlocks the ability to do a lot of different things like like do digital diplomas at scale, to do credentialing for skills and stuff like that at scale in a way that's also standardized. Like right now, it's just kind of like you know people can issue these badges. There's different badge protocols, but it's pretty ad hoc. It, you know, there's no real systemic way to find them and verify them. It's it's just it's kind of a mess. So. In order for us to unlock a ton of business opportunity in LinkedIn, in you know areas, you know other investments we've made, you know things like GitHub and all these other things, you have to have users owning their own ID. It can't be a Microsoft-owned ID, or we just it's just not safe to to do these certain use cases. And also with that, what is it about Bitcoin? And I know it's uh, this stuff can be done on Ethereum and other blockchains as well. But just specifically, let's just keep it to Bitcoin because that's what my show is. What is it about Bitcoin that uh, enables this to make it possible to create these IDs? Yeah, so you know, I, I think it helps understanding. Like people think, well, you know, why are you even doing anything with Bitcoin or any blockchain at all? I think it helps to understand like what what does an ID system gain from a blockchain? Because there's lots of there's lots of bullshit going around about you know people using blockchains for all sorts of nonsense. You know, I would actually hearken back to what Satoshi first called Bitcoin before it was blockchain, which was time chain. Turns out that PKI, which is public key infrastructure, and that's like the thing that backs identifiers. So I'll give you an analogy of what one is today. Um, an existing example is the DNS system. The identifier is a domain name, and then the backing you know, PKI data is your zone file in DNS that lists your name servers, you know, routing information, and then there's certificate um, authorities that have the sort of backing cryptography. So those are, that's an example of a PKI system. Every PKI system, if it isn't centralized, like a CI system where they just kind of decree that this, these are your certs, if you wanted to decentralize that, the most important piece is having a global immutable append-only log because everyone needs to see the state of some identifier. Like if Alice creates an ID, and she initially associates, say, her phone that she has at the time with her ID and a public key on it. Uh, when she goes to get a new phone, she's going to switch that, that key out. And so everyone needs to be able to see that event globally and deterministically. Or else someone could masquerade as Alice. They could say, well, I have her old key, so I'm her, right? You have to have this sort of linear chronology of what happened when. It's a state machine. So what a blockchain does really elegantly that we've never had before is it's an oracle for entering events into a chronology. 
And that's exactly what we use it for. In its most primitive sense, we use Bitcoin to enter in events in a chronology that the nodes sort of watch for and compute. And so they, they all can understand the state of every ID uh, that's anchored in Bitcoin. So it's very important. So why would we pick Bitcoin versus some other you know, blockchain like you first asked? Well, because we're not actually concerned with any of the you know, super sexy smart contract or any you know, interesting, I don't know, what, whatever you might call it, right? Not to say that you know, there's less interesting stuff in Bitcoin, but we, we just don't care about features like that. That is not applicable for us. What we most care about is entering stuff in the most immutable, hardened record imaginable. And right now, that's Bitcoin. It's pretty hard to argue that that isn't Bitcoin. So that's why we use it, is because it has those attributes and it, it suffices. It does exactly what we need it to do. Okay, cool. What, what's the status of the project right now? So right now, you know, when we, when we spoke in March, um, last March, mm-hmm. um, basically we had done you know, a few months, really quick sprints to do a, a prototype to kind of prove out the, the basic parts of the protocol, um, which is the scalable you know, DPKI and identifier system that layers on top of Bitcoin, kind of like, um, kind of like lightning layers on top of Bitcoin for money. And, you know, that was, that turned out well, like we were able to learn a lot from that. In the last year, we've really been just trying to actually produce this in production quality. And it's gotten to the state where we're pretty confident of it and we want to move it to Bitcoin mainnet. And that's what, exactly what we're doing as a beta. And this beta, we, you know, expect to last every summer. We hope to get it into a V1 final form in fall but this is this is kind of the real deal i mean this is where it's it's an open public network we don't control anything about it in terms of there's no authorities or anything in the system we have no special privileges and it's going to be live on bitcoin and anyone who runs a node and uses the protocol can can be a part of it so it's kind of it's a little bit out of our hands at this point it's a little strange for some of the people internally at microsoft to to think about it like this we've never a lot of these folks have never worked on decentralized systems before So, so the idea that like we're just contributors to something and it sort of exists without us is very new, I think, for some of the people in the organization, but it's been an experience. Yeah, so in terms of the kind of dev on it, and, and bear in mind I'm, I'm way off anything remotely technical, but is there like a central GitHub repository that someone, some group of people are responsible for? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we are we are the main contributors to the code at this point, but it is in the Decentralized Identity Foundation's GitHub repository. Ion is the name of it. So you can contribute code there. You can you know read every line of code. There's no you know, code insertions after the fact. Like every bit of every piece of uh, of code that we run as an Ion node is there. So it's totally you know inspectable. It also has a formal specification we've been working on in Diff where. You know, you should be able to follow the protocol specification, produce a node that works and looks just like the, the uh, reference TypeScript implementation we've done. So we're, we're trying to do everything we can to make sure that this protocol is sort of, you know, it's not some special thing that we have special knowledge about. It's, it's something that's completely open. Okay. And in terms of usage, because adoption will come down to usability, how does mm. it actually work in terms of me as an individual? Look, I'm a... I'm a Bitcoiner, right? And I've got Bitcoin. Is it, I can have what, one ID per private key I have that can become an ID? So I can have multiple IDs? Yeah, so you can actually have as many IDs as you want um, in the system. Um, you can have thousands, for instance. We actually, there's, there's this concept that, you know, we kind of play around with that is um, you're going to have probably a couple persona IDs. So like well-known persona IDs. And this is great for someone like you, right? You want a couple IDs in the world that people know are Peter. Like 
when Peter signs this with this ID, that's Peter. It's not anyone else, not any scammers or imposters, that's, that's him. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of public stuff you'll tie to that, right? You might tie your, your resume, you know, your podcasts, like signed statements you make, like public, you know, things you say. That's all good. We all want that as, you know, most users want that. Then you have a ton of identifiers, like maybe 99% of them that we call sort of like peer-wise or pairwise identifiers, where you might meet someone or a company or an app um, you get engaged with where you want to create an ID just for that connection. So that when you create the ID, it, it keeps that connection sort of siloed and private between you two so that you're not leaking information. So it's not just like one ID that signs everything. And anytime you see any signature, you can like triangulate it back to you. Um, what we're trying to do is section those relationships out so that you can keep them as private as you would like between you and your counterparties. And to answer your other question about you know how many keys and stuff, uh, DIDs, it's an international standard that's, that's being finalized in the W3C. So, the, so this stuff is actually all built on standards. And DIDs are represented by this thing called a DID document, which is just a piece of metadata that contains key references and endpoints, so routing endpoints. You can have as, as many keys in that document as you want. You have, say, like a key that maps to your phone and your laptop and you know, other devices you own, because that's the devices you're going to be using your ID with. Um, and you can have a bunch of different keys. So it's not like Bitcoin addresses where there's like a key behind an address or even just multi-sig. It, it's a lot, you know, you can have a lot more variety than that. And then you can also put endpoints that point to certain things. So you can have an endpoint that points to your Twitter profile, or you can have an endpoint that points to like a personal data store with encrypted data. And that's kind of the more future looking stuff when we start getting into apps. And will I have some interface for managing all my IDs? Because it will come down to usability for adoption long term by the yeah. you know, general public, someone like myself. Um, I, I'm sure the techies will get on with it fine. Because uh, I'm, I'm kind of imagining stage one is going to be a bit, little bit like when we first got Bitcoin and it was command line. I'm assuming early days are going to be almost like command line interfaces. But at some point, I would want something like, you know, like a one pass or a dash lane where I can just manage all my IDs in a single location. Is that coming? Is that coming now or is that coming later? Yeah, actually. So there's going to be some announcements here about what, what we're doing to try and help that, which is, you know, we're integrating DIDs into our authenticator app called Microsoft Authenticator. If you're familiar with like Google Authenticator or some of the other things, it's right now it handles 2FA. It's got like your passcodes, you know, for your 2FA stuff uh, for apps. Um, we're adding DID support. So you'll be able to, you know, get DIDs. We're not even like up-leveling the concept of DIDs. So you don't have to be super technical. It's going to just get IDs for you when you make new connections, um, help you manage those keys and state. Um, and we're going to be doing everything we can to augment that process to make it as easy for, you know, the average person as, as possible. And that's, it is not to say though, I, I just wanted to say that it's not our, you know, you don't have to get our, our wallet. The cool thing about, you know, the DID system we're building on Bitcoin you can have an open source wallet that you go download and all the libraries, everything to create these ideas is completely untethered from any company. So you could say, you know what? I don't trust you, Microsoft. Like, you know, screw, screw you. I'm going to go get this like completely open source, uh, you know, GPL3 thing that I see out there on GitHub and I'm going to run that. And that's perfectly fine. In fact, we encourage it. Do you think this could stop SIM swapping? Oh yeah. I mean, it has the potential to, right? I mean, if, if carriers were able to tie they're, you know, to, to tie your account to a DID, something hardened that literally an attacker would have to physically come take from you, just like they would have to take your Bitcoin, then yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't think we have this sort of transient ID problem where it can just be like, you know, one button push from an operator, you know, on their end, you know, switches your, your account. 
And, and in terms of using it, sorry, I've got loads of these little kind of questions. And I think I asked you this last time when we spoke, but every time I want to verify an ID, does something happen on the Bitcoin blockchain? Therefore, do I have to pay some kind of transaction fee? No, no. So, so one thing that's interesting about this is when we talk about PKI systems, and I'll use the analogy of DNS again, you don't have to go changing your DNS records when you log into Facebook, right? You change your DNS records very infrequently, like when you want to move an IP address. So much like that, the system of DIDs, like maybe when you get a new phone, you want to swap out the public key that was on your old one for the new one. So it's a, it's a very infrequent activity, right? So when you go to do like authentications, like if you authenticate it into an app with your DID by signing a public and private key challenge based on the ID, um, none of that actually touches Bitcoin. In fact, it doesn't even touch ION, the you know, DID system that we're helping to build. That is completely above. That's like once you have your ID and you want to use it, like you would go onto the website, the website would assert to you, hey, please log in. And you'd say, well, I'm DID123. And it, what the website's going to do is say, well, I don't believe you. you know, I'm going to go look that DID up. I'm going to find the keys that I know are associated with it. And when it does, that lookup doesn't incur any Bitcoin costs or anything like that. They're just finding cache data. And they say, great, I have the keys. Now I'm going to, I'm going to sign something and you know, you're going to be able to answer this challenge if you truly own that ID. And so that entire activity um, happened at a third layer, like well above, you know, it doesn't touch any blockchain stuff at all. Oh, cool. So it's, it is kind of like, like a better version of two-factor authentication, right? Yeah, a better version of two-factor authentication. I mean, it gives us an opportunity to do things like, you know, potentially in the future, you know, better underpinning for things like DNS. It is, it is a global registry. At least ION has the ability to be. Um, and I know that sounds scary when you say global registry of IDs. When I, when I say registry, what I mean is every ID in ION is, you know, at least the identifier. You might not know anything else about the ID. You don't know that it's a person or a dog on the internet or anything like that, but you know the ID and the keys. So if you ever ran into that person, you could at least like say, hey, you know, prove you're you. Anything else, any other data that you'd want to expose has nothing to do with ION or Bitcoin. None of that is, is embedded in Bitcoin. That's completely off, you know, on, on regular, you know, infrastructure. Um, and it's up to you what you want to disclose. So when I say registry of IDs, it means that ION essentially provides you the ability to iterate over every ID that's been entered into the system. And this is pretty cool, right? It has some, some interesting applications. One application that I like to throw out there that devs might resonate with a little bit is like NPM, right? Which we just bought. We just bought NPM. You know, it's part of like the GitHub family of, of products. And NPM is a centralized registry for developers to be able to register packages, packages of code that they use, you know, to kind of like bootstrap their apps and get going faster. Um, that's great. I mean, NPM is a great service, but it is centralized. If they wanted to eliminate your package, if they wanted to do anything, they could do it. What ION provides you the ability to do is you can create identifiers that aren't just for humans or companies. You can create identifiers for, you know, intangible, non-living things like a package. So, in, so instead, I could go get a DID for my package and I could put the service endpoint to point to GitHub, right? And from there, I can go scan ION, find all the packet, all the IDs in the system that declare themselves to be, say, packages, right? And create a decentralized version of NPM where I'm no longer reliant on NPM happening to exist or to believe my packet is worth indexing. Um, I can create that index myself. I can present the same sort of UI you would see on NPM, but I don't need a central, centralized entity in the middle of that. So when when is it out? When, when when can we play with this? I mean, I I probably won't won't because I imagine first version will go above my head. But when is this out? <laughs> uh, yeah, so so we're making the announcement uh, first week of June. 
It's going mm-hmm. to be in beta stage. It'll be running on Bitcoin, on Bitcoin mainnet. We have a node up. Um, you know, we've been writing some test transactions in the blockchain for any, you know, blockchain splunkers out there who want to, you know, dive into some op return data. It's, it's, it's an open protocol. So anyone can run a node. Um, we've made the, the requirements pretty light. I mean, right now, run, by the way, running a full node is, is something that is absolutely important, critical. Um, if you want even maybe even more so than money, you know, if you wanted to spend a little Bitcoin, you threw it out there as a couple bucks or, you know, five bucks or whatever, you might not care. You'd be like, all right, I'm just going to like, you know, use a light wallet, throw it out some node that I know or whatever, and I'm going to let it go. I think it's going to go through. You could do that. But to look up the IDs in ION, you have to have a full node. You've got to have the index of history. So in fact, we're going to be spawning, you know, a new reason why people will want to run full nodes because it actually provides you concrete value you absolutely cannot get any other way. So running a node for us, it's a really, it's a priority that anyone be able to do it. So our target hardware has been like this little 2017 Intel NUC that I bought for 400 bucks, you know, back three years ago when we started this. And um, this thing, you know, it's pretty underpowered. It's like a 2017 i5. It's got six gigs of RAM and, you know, half terabyte hard drive. And we're running this thing at full scale as fast as you could do on even our Azure blades or anything like that. And you could run it at home right under your desk. And so part of that is running a Bitcoin full node, IPFS and other things. And anyone should be able to get it started. So we're putting out the install guides, Docker containers for a quick install. All of that is coming out next week. And we really want to encourage people to, you know, to install it and help us, especially if you're technically capable or you're a coder, have some, some aptitude, um, kick the tires on it. Like, let us know, find bugs. Like, this is for everyone. This is a public utility. We're not trying to make money on this at all. Um, so just help it be the best it can be. It's still kind of crazy that a company like Microsoft is it's working on decentralized IDs using Bitcoin. Like, when you just... <laughs> When you just say that, when you just try and walk that through, it's it's kind of insane. Like, you you might not be able to answer this, but I'll ask it anyway. Like, what are, what are the feelings with Bitcoin like around the people you work with? Is there a general kind of acceptance and like about it? You know, you know, I'll be as honest as I can be. Right, um, not not everyone I work with is like is into Bitcoin. Uh, I would say the majority yeah. aren't. Right, they don't care. They're product people. They want to get something done. They do, they do understand, you know, that like there's one system out there that's just stood just embattled test of time. Right. And, and it, so that, that part's like sort of empirical. You can't really argue with that part. Um, there are believers, you know, among the team, people who like, you know, do believe in Bitcoin, but I would say the majority, they, they believe in decentralized identity. And the reason they believe in it is for all the things it does, not necessarily how we're doing it, but what it does, what it does for people, what it enables for the business, all sorts of other stuff. I, of course, personally believe in, you know, it being as censorship resistant and tamper um, evasive as possible. So that's the reason why I heavily encouraged us to go this route. But, you know, it becomes a humanitarian thing. It's hard to argue with, right? Like you could go set up some private permission blockchain or something, but that's only as decentralized as whoever is running those few nodes that gets to decide everything. And my put is that, you know, that's, that's not really... I don't know. That, that's not really something we're interested in because it's not significantly differentiated from the centralized identity systems we provide today. And it's just not something that might you know, be good for people, right? To get people involved in a system where they can be shut off. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair point. Okay, so there's some other things I want to talk to you about, but if people are listening to this, how do they find out more about these IDs? Where do they go to? Yeah, so you know, I'd head over to Decentralized Identity Foundation. There's a, a group, a working group there called SideTree. 
SideTree is actually the protocol that underpins Ion. It's a, it is a blockchain agnostic protocol. So there's, there's great contributors um, that have contributed code from Consensus, Transmute. These are, you know, a lot of Ethereum companies, a few others, um, you know, from completely different, you know, ecosystems. Um, so we've had great contributors from all across the board and they're running SideTree right now is being run on Ethereum, the name's Elements, that network. It's, it uses the same core protocol. And we love those folks. I mean, they, they have been great in terms of helping the protocol along. And, you know, we are all using the same underpinning foundations. And I think that that's actually a good thing. I mean, there's no reason why free and open software can't be used by anyone. So I would go, go check that working group out. It has links to IONS repos, the Docker containers, the CLIs, everything you would need if you wanted to, you know, get involved and kick the tires. Next up, we'll talk to Daniel more about Microsoft's decentralized identity system and libertarianism. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. So come on, have you checked out Sportsbet yet? Hopefully you have. If you haven't, hopefully with the football coming back this week, especially with the Premier League, you'll be checking it out. It is the best place for online gaming, and they do accept Bitcoin, which is so cool. And also, I can announce, we've got another What Bitcoin Did Poker Tournament, which is booked for this Sunday, 7pm, GMT, 8pm London, and there will be one Bitcoin in prizes and a 50 MBTC bounty on my head. There is an entry fee for this tournament, it is 200k sats, which is about 20 bucks, but the first 500 people to sign up will get a free Watford shirt, that is the Premier League team with a Bitcoin logo on their shirt. If you want to find out more how you can sign up and claim your free shirt, just head over to my website, which is whatbitcoindid.com forward slash sportsbet, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T, or just go to my Twitter feed. You'll find out more about it there. If you want to find out more about Sportsbet, just head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, and lastly, today we have my new sponsor, Casa. So after a long overdue review of my Bitcoin security, I've signed up with Casa Keymaster. It's been on my mind for a while. You know, Jameson lots always saying that you should be reviewing your security practices. And I was about a year out since I've done anything. So I had another look and I thought it's time to level up. It is time to sign up with Casa. And I did it with my own money. I wanted to see the value. I didn't want to just have a freebie and just say, oh, that's pretty cool. No, I wanted to do it with my own money and see the value. And then I contacted the CEO, Nick Newman. I said, come on, we need to work together. This is this is so cool. I had my onboarding call yesterday with them, set up all my devices. I am now a Keymaster user. Very, very easy to do. It's a really smooth process with the team. They taught me through everything. They set up all my devices. The app is amazingly clear how to use it. Honestly, I was really blown away by what the team have done here. So yeah, I've got a couple more things to do, a couple more things with deciding where I'm going to hide on my devices and just a couple other things in the background. Once I've done a complete setup, I'm going to talk you all through it. But it's very, very cool. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do go and check out Castle. If you want to take your security a bit more seriously, definitely want to take a look at Keymaster. It's an amazing product. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Right, now I want to get in some other juicy things with you. Um, you're one of those people, when I see a notification on Twitter that you've replied to one of my posts, I'm always like... Oh, fuck, what have I said? Have I said something dumb here? <laughs> um, because uh, you always come in with um, quite interesting takes. It's, I, I, I see you as like a practical anarchist. Does that does that make sense? Isn't that you're an, like an anarchist, but I also see like you're, you have like a practical understanding of the way the world works. Is that, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I get you in trouble in some anarchist circles, you know, being practical and all. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I suppose <laughs> yeah. so. I mean, I, I try and I, I try to take a position of, you know, I'm a little dogmatic, 
right? Let, I mean, I'll be honest. That's a, there's, whether it's a character flaw or not, I suppose it's debatable, but um, I, I'm certainly strong willed in terms of like the positions I take, but I don't try and just kind of shit post because I, I like, I, I personally like to say like, what could we do to actually better the situation? Um, even if it's yeah. through, uh, you know, through a mechanism or an idea that maybe isn't mainstream, right? At least present something that says, here's a different way. Instead of just saying that way sucks, because anyone can say yeah. that way sucks. It takes a little bit more mental effort to say that way sucks. And here's how we could do things better. So, you know, I, I do try to kind of question things and get people to, to think about some of the structures they've built up in their mind, right? We have, I think our populace is, is beholden to a sort of Stockholm syndrome when it comes to governance that we've been raised in since birth and that we believe religiously that there's these two parties or N number of parties who should control things. And, and that's the only way to live life is, you know, trying desperately every election to fight, you know, some other subset of people. And I, and I just think that that's a sad and tragic way to kind of govern, you know, humans. Yeah. See, it's interesting you should say that because the last UK election was the last one I, I, I decided not to vote. I got stuck in some of the uh, left v right arguments on Facebook with people and I started to realize this is just a bullshit game. None of these people actually do give a fuck about us. They just want power and they just want to win. And this left v right bullshit we're just getting sucked into over and over again. So I, I, I decided to 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 not vote and, and, and kind of reject that that being playing part of that game but we are living in this most fucking crazy time right now dude look we've look not only have we had a pandemic and lockdowns globally the economy globally is in a very precarious position we have got donald trump today with an executive order potentially coming out about social media we've just had this guy um who was i, I mean i would say george floyd who was pretty much murdered yep. certainly like in my in your most liberal argument ever, you could say he was killed via neglect of a overzealous policeman, but I would say he was pretty much murdered. We've got riots. Like it feels like everything. It's like it's like the kettle's boiling now. In every single direction, everything is getting kind of fiery. Like how are you feeling right now? Because I think in some ways, if you if you're an anarchist, you're almost a time right now everything you've ever thought and stood for and argued with people about and at times where people have probably think you're some, like some kind of weirdo out like some crazy weirdo like everything you'll say you've said and forewarned is coming true all at the same time yeah i mean it it is you know that it's funny it's, it's like there's there's no good feeling in that there's i i would rather be the most wrong person on twitter personally the things i say i'd rather they be dead wrong and not see them come to fruition because my belief is that this stuff is leading us down a path to authoritarianism and, and a serfdom that is, it could be irreversible for generations. And if we don't get a hold of it, um, it's not just going to be these initial signs that we're seeing, right? COVID, you know, some people are craving more, more government intervention than we even had, but they have been able to flex their power in dramatic ways. I mean, even for the people that crave more of it, it's like they shut down the entire country. Now, we can debate how justified some of those activities were, but that is power. I mean, that is, that is power. They have the power to arrest people for walking around in parks, you know, that are too close to each other. Like, it, 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 people should be scared of that. They shouldn't cheer it on. 
you know, we've been laying these foundations with the Patriot Act, with, you know, you know backdooring crypto, the efforts to do that. And libertarians, specifically libertarians, have been, have been calling this out for decades without anyone listening. And we've, we've been mocked and people laugh at us and stuff. And, but, but the last laugh isn't going to be us. The last laugh is going to be tears from our kids, from everyone else that has to live under these power structures that we carte blanchely just, you know, we're okay with for so long. Well, I've been going through my own transition with this because I think one of the interesting things about libertarianism and anarchism is that until you know of it, you do have this Stockholm syndrome. You're conditioned to this left v right. Prior to Bitcoin, I, I, I never even thought of a world without government. I was just like, this is the way it is. And if anyone had originally explained it to me, I'd be like, well, that's fucking stupid. That's a crazy idea. I don't want to live in Mad Max world. And even when the lockdowns first happened, the virus, I, I, I did say, I put it out on Twitter. I said, you know what? I, th- I am a bit of a status right now. I believe that we, we require centralized planning to deal with this. And actually, and I'll stand by some comments on it. I, I had a uh, discussion with Ragnarli yesterday. Like, for example, the army did a really great job of building some hospitals very quickly in the UK. And perhaps they would have done that quicker than, than without it, blah, blah, blah. But it's no excuse. But even going through this process... I've come out the end of it and said I was wrong. The government have got, especially in the UK, I mean, I don't know what your views on the US, but the government have got so much wrong about this in the UK. Even if at the start you say, I give you the power, I I want you to do this, I want you to solve it. They've had every power to do it and they fucked it up every single part in in sourcing PPE. It's today in, in, in terms of you know, providing, uh, we have a lot of, we have a poverty problem in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the US, but one of the big fears with closing down the schools was there are children that rely on those meals at school because their family can't afford it. So they had to put in a voucher program just to help feed these kids. And they didn't manage to put it in place. And there's kids going hungry. Like there's so many parts of this that have gone wrong that I've come out the end of it going, right, not even the small amount of uh, trust I put in the government was, was worth it. And, um, yeah, I, I guess you've probably seen this when you've talked to, but you've seen people go through these transitional periods, yeah? Mm. yeah absolutely. I mean, I, I did too. Uh, so, you know, it, it's funny how people always, you know, the quip, the cliche they always give you is, oh, you know, I was a libertarian until I got to, you know, out of college. And, you know, some, I was actually, I, I was never like a Republican Republican. I was more of like a constitutionalist, someone like Justin Amash, you know, in the United States, House Representative Justin Amash, who, you know, was potentially going to run for the libertarian ticket. That, that's who I was um, when I was you know, 17 to maybe about 23. Um, and then, you know, even from that standpoint, where I still didn't really even believe in the Republican stuff, I, I came even further and I said, gosh, it's just, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you know, they're so ineffective uh, at the national level. They, there's, they do so much more wrong than they do good, yet we continually fund them. And I just saw failure after failure. And when you see enough of it, um, it, it just becomes undeniable. You just can't with a straight face look in the mirror and say, I continue to support this system because it's a clown car that just keeps doing what it's doing for decades on end. And we are the definition of insanity with, with authoritarian governance. We just keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, and it just gets worse and worse. And, you know, you said, well, I don't know how it is in the U.S. And I was going to joke and say, well, no, it's much better here. But if anything has happened over the last, I don't know, 15 years of governance in the U.S., it has highlighted how ineffective and dramatically negative the vast majority of nationalized government is. And I think that 
if you stand back as an objective person who isn't bought into the two twix factories of authoritarianism that you know all taste the same, um, you, you can't look at that without a without coming away saying we need something different. And so, I don't know. One thing I would love to talk about is like in the spirit of solutions, like why 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 wouldn't you need a nationalized government? I mean, you know, why why would that not be the case that you, that you would? And I think there's a lot of great there's a lot of great arguments for that. I'm, I'm curious if if you uh, you're saying you kind of had this these moments over the last you know recent period where you've thought differently has it has anything like that occurred to you like how we could do it without it how we could do things without government well my 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 thing is and i i read a really great article by scott horton because i did an interview with him is that one of the things i've always struggled with is that if you had a big the big red button to to switch off government i don't think it would be a good idea to just turn off government one day and because I think not only do you have Stockholm Syndrome, but you have a reliance. And, and suddenly, I think you would descend into some form of chaos. But I've always liked the idea, and some of the things that, uh, you know, you've got libertarians who completely abstain from anything to do with politics. But I actually think there's a lot of benefit in having a libertarian party. Because if you were to have some success, say a Ron Paul would, would have got in power, you could go through the process of weaning yourself off government, step by step. You know, which bits can we get rid of first? Where can we, where can we remove interference? Where can we open up the market and and, and um, reduce government influence? Where can we do what thing, things we can do to reduce taxation? Because I think that I think you could you have to go through a process of weaning yourself off it. So that's kind of where my my head is now. But one of the things I I really struggle with Daniel is like that. Amongst my circle of friends, I am now that weirdo, and, and I'm no way nearer down the <laughs> rabbit hole as you. I, 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 put like, I put little things up on Facebook as a, as a real testing ground sometimes to, to gauge opinion. I'm the, I'm the weirdo, and I'm, but I'm here thinking, no, I'm fucking rational here. I'm being rational. Because like, I, 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 I'm seeing it, like a lot of this with clarity, but I am now seen as, as the weirdo, and I don't even know how to get people over these steps to just think about you're fighting left v right you think every single time every four years when that if you vote and your the government you want in power comes into power it's going to change anything it doesn't change anything nothing ever changes everything just gets a little bit more shit <laughs> like yeah. other things get good yeah. you know we have better healthcare. we have everyone has a mobile phone and an ipad and technology and you know, a lot of people have a, a, a house to live in and clothes. Like, we don't, like, we, we get further and further away from, you know, poverty. But at the same time, everyone's a little bit more, un seems a little bit more angry or, or pissed off. And I can't pinpoint exactly why this is happening. But I see it now with a lot more clarity than I did before. But I just don't see a no government right now. I, I, I'm not anti-government. I'm anti-bad government. I'm just not sure if you can have good government. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, this is the way I feel, right? Um, personally as well. I mean, it, and I, I do think there is a place where it all stems from. It, it really all stems from, from one, one thing, which is um, this, this Jefferson quote, you know, that I, I really like. I, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, but he basically, you know, he talks about how um, you should have every right to do everything you know, that your natural rights allow, which is free speech, free movement, all of these different things, so long as it doesn't affect the rights of others, because your rights stop where, where another person's rights begin. Um, and then he goes on to say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't classify these rights based on the law, 
because, because the law is often the tyrant's will, right? And always so, always. He doesn't say maybe, or if you pass the right law, it's not. He's always so when they violate the rights of the individual. So I think what we have people doing today is expressly violating the rights of individuals through the systems of governance that we have. And, and it really is all rooted in one sort of human desire. Um, and that is people want to see their vision of the world occur, right? So what, what, what government does, especially authoritarian democracies do, is they empower large mobs of people to go and enforce very subjective, often highly subjective ideas, beliefs, things like that on other people by force. And if you wanted good governance, you just wouldn't make that possible. It just wouldn't be possible because right now you can vote to say, I want this healthcare system. I want this system for, for doing this service. And those are just subjective ideas. What, what gives any of us a right to join with a mob of other people and force our ideas on people? I mean, I, I look at that as, you know, that's bullying behavior. That's the, that's the kid on the five, you know, on the, on the fifth grade playground going around shaking down people for lunch money. Like, you know, we, I was told not to do that when I was a young kid and I, I you know, I'm not blameless. I, you know, I, I, I failed as well, but, but now I look at it and say, I can't do that. I don't want to dictate other people's lives, but we've made dictation of people's lives through mobs into a noble activity. People say, I went and voted, man. You know, I voted on that measure. That's going to force these people who smoked a plant to go to jail. Like they feel good about it. Like it's some sort of, you know, like there's some sort of patriot for like, you know, encumbering other people's lives. And I think that that has to change. That mentality has to change or we will never see freedom in our time. Yeah. And the other thing I find with that politics is it does, it, it divides people really who should, shouldn't be divided. Like, I mean, I don't like Donald Trump, uh, a lot of what he does. And there's some things he's done. I think they're kind of interesting. But the things I note that are really interesting about it is that it's the stories you read. Of, for example, I, I think he was on Twitter I saw recently. Some girl's parents aren't going to go to her wedding because she's marrying a, a Trump supporter. And it feels like wherever you have an opinion on something, it, it's very much uh, tied to your political, political identity. So you end up just dividing people who have no reason to be divided because in the end, it doesn't matter whoever wins the election, I don't think people's lives will materially change that much. Not as much as they think it will. And it then it almost becomes like sports teams, like Team Trump or Team Biden. But actually, really, as people, we should just be working together together to, to better the, the, the society we want to live with. But I find that politicians, it's almost like the, the whole political process itself is, is getting worse and worse and becoming more of a, like a, a fight. And I don't know if I blame the politicians or the media or this is just like a natural conclusion. For example, the natural conclusion for artificial intelligence might be the end of humanity, right? The, the, <laughs> the, the natural conclusion for politics might be uh, that and, and, and media combined is that we get to a point where we just have almost like civil war. I feel like we are heading towards that at the moment. Perhaps everything is just coming to this kind of crescendo of, of change. I don't know. What do you feel? Well, I, I actually think this is the natural, this is the natural conclusion, right? And, and I, I have to have empathy for people like you mentioned, right? Where, where the, uh, the parents won't go to the wedding of the daughter uh, because, you know, political affiliations of her you know, potential husband or something. Th the reason why people are so fierce 
about this and have become so tribalistic is because it, it really actually does represent force. I mean, government and, and the votes and the representatives you send are an extension of violence. I mean, you know, I've never seen a government law passed where, you know, they send the Care Bears to your house to hug it out, like to just try and convince you as, as friendly as possible, maybe sit down and have a beer with you and then see if you just really want to, you know, adhere to their subjective law. They come either with court orders. If you don't show up, they're going to send a bench warrant. Then they're going to send armed goons to you. It is not a joke. Every law is backed by force. So when you see these two mobs, the reason why they're getting more and more and more vicious is because they know one thing that is true, which is if one mob wins, sure, they are very much the same. We're still going into debt. We still have the Patriot Act. We still have troops in the Middle East. Um, and so they're very alike in many ways. But there's all these little fringe subjective things. They don't want forced on them using violence. So that's why they become violent towards each other. That's why they're so aggressive is because they are literally in a fight or flight mode that tells them if I don't win, something's going to be forced on them. And that system, that is the root of our descent, right? In this sort of authoritarian morass is that system of pitting people against each other using violence. Well, and we see, we've seen it also with this monopoly of violence that the police have. Yeah, I mentioned it earlier with George Floyd, what happened this week, which is just so gross, like just fucking unbelievable. We, we all just watched somebody die on camera right in front of our eyes with a guy with a, a, a knee on his neck, which blows my mind that it's happened. And, and now we're seeing riots and now we're seeing the result of that. And and I keep thinking, when are we going to get past this? When are we going to get past this power tripping whereby the the police can just kill somebody like that? Because, well, I, I tell you one thing that, it's really interesting. This would get me in trouble with my friends at home. They just wouldn't understand this thing. But recently I was a bit like, we saw, remind me of the state, but there was a bunch of, um, it was almost like a militia came out with their guns and rocket launchers and went up to the, the government building, government courthouse, whatever, and said, we're yeah, against the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck? You don't need a rocket launcher. And it clicked <laughs> with me. It, it clicked with me because... If you if you get away from the number of gun deaths in the US, yes, that is terrible. That is shocking. I don't like it at all. And, and I'm not saying I want guns in the UK right now. But it is amazing how that the people in the US can get together and they can go up to a government building with their guns and say, we've had enough. We don't want this anymore. We're not going to stand for this. And we're willing to defend ourselves. And we can defend ourselves. Yes. And that is something that is actually very unique about the US. It's taken me a long time to get my head around. And I'm not fully there. I don't 100% get it. But I am a lot closer to understanding why that exists now and why that, that's the Second Amendment, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you mentioned some good examples, too. And, and there's a couple other ones, right? So the, I, I, I'm not going to say his name right. And I, I, you know, I apologize for this. But, um, I think it's Ahmad Arbery was the um, young man that was like sort of chased down by those guys in the trucks. You know, he ended up getting shot. Yeah. Um, the Black Panthers actually came uh, to their march and escorted them with a bunch of rifles down to the place they wanted to do their protest. No one got any beanbags shot at them. There's no tear gas. There was a guy in the protest that just happened for this last, you know, Floyd, um, for this last one. And lo and behold, they're, you know, they're firing beanbags off and other stuff, you know, over in a different section. 
there's a section of a couple people that are, you know, they're strapped. Police are minding their P's and Q's. Why? Because no one wants to deal with that. And, and it just makes society a little bit more polite. You know, when you know that there is sort of, you know, the ability to defend yourself versus helpless people, people tend to get a little bit more polite about how they conduct themselves. Um, I, I would say, you know, this is one thing that I, you know, I'll mention about defense, right? Defending ourselves as, as citizens, right? Of the United States as, as really as free individuals. Some people laugh at that. They say, this is, you know, to get into, you know, a topic that I think we can change people's minds with. They say, well, you can never defend yourself with guns. The government, they have so, so much bigger weapons than guns. And so, you know, a few stats to throw out, right? There's something on the order of like 350 million guns in the United States. That's an enormous number of guns. It, it puts, it pales in comparison to any other country. Um, we have more armed citizens, somewhere between the neighborhood of 75 million to 90 million armed citizens in the United States. That is more armed people than all the world's militaries combined times two. So I would say good luck if you wanted to try sustained occupation in the United States, more than all the militaries combined times two. And so that's a tough, that's tough sledding. It was tough sledding back in World War II, it's tough sledding now. Now, in terms of the government itself, generally speaking, a civil war, you know, in a civil war, a government is not going to sit there and just destroy every single part of, you know, a country. The whole point is so that they can seize infrastructures and so they can take, they, they don't want, no one wants to govern over a burning pile of, you know, nuclear rubble. So the idea that they're going to carpet bomb, you know, large metro cities or, you know, all this other stuff, or somehow engage 90 million people over 3.8 square million square miles of territory that's 20 something times the size of Afghanistan is a pipe dream. So we certainly have the capacity to defend ourselves. And when I look at the Second Amendment, it's highly effective. And if people don't understand that, that's because they don't understand the decentralization and diffusion of that power amongst many, many people. Yeah, exporting that, though, to somewhere like the UK, it's, it's going to be very difficult. I can have this conversation with you, <laughs> and I get it now. Uh, like I say, I'm a lot closer to understanding it. If I tried to have this conversation with, if I was down the pub with some of my friends, I said, Do you know what? The problem in our country is that we don't have something like the Second Amendment, which allows us, if we're unhappy with the governors of our country, to come and stand outside the Bedford County Council office with our rocket launchers and say, we've had enough. You know, to stand there as, as a group of people and to issue a warning that we've had enough. It's, it's not going to wash. People are going to think I've gone fucking mad. It's, and it's it's really it's a really tough thing to try and explain to people, but but I think I understand it and I think I get it. And it, the other point is, I don't know how many times uh, a militia has actually come to shots with the government. We've seen situations where things have got out of hand. I mean, I wouldn't, I I don't know if I would refer to Waco as a militia, but that were certainly people who were armed and went up against the government, and that was that was tragic. But I, I that was more of a cult. But in terms of the militias. I don't know any, how many times that actually has come to shots. You might know of examples. The other example I can always think of is that one where they were trying to protect the guy. He had the his, his farmland. Yeah, the land. It was in Nevada. I think it was the uh, the Bund yeah. um, was it the Bundys or Brady. I, I forget what the last name was, but um, I think it was yeah. Bundy. I mean, they they ended up not having to fire a shot, right? I mean, that's that's the reality is that the government backed off. I mean, in large part, um, kind of conceded. And, and that was because, you know, they had a few hundred people and, and they thought maybe the optics, maybe the PR of coming in with a drone or something would be a little, little terrifying, but that's exactly what you need to do. You need to say, 
I can assert myself to a point where it is going to be very painful for you as the authoritarian regime in power to do something about this versus you are sheep, you have no defense and you kind of just, you know, no one's towing the line uh, in your regard, right? You're, you're going to do whatever they say. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting time with this election coming up because, well, it's just going to be very interesting. Uh, I'm going to watch it as a, it's almost like entertainment. It's, it's almost become like entertainment. Um, I don't have a horse in the race. Mm-hmm. I would really struggle to choose between the, the two candidates because I think they're both deeply flawed in entirely different ways. And I think it's ultimately going to create even more division within the US. I, yeah, I just really don't know how it's going to play out. I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you don't vote, but what what do you? Um, how do you I, take politics in? I, I do. Occasionally I do. I, it's always for the libertarian candidate. Oh. I mean, in, in this election... Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I think this election is, is almost just like a, an absolute comedy, right? We have two mid seven year old, you know, dementia addled kooky individuals who have, you know, various character flaws of, of incredible degree uh, versus Joe Jorgensen, who's the libertarian nominee. Um, she's an esteemed lecturer at Clemson. She has her master's in business. She has a PhD in psychology. She worked in the tech industry and you know other industries. And 95% of the population is going to vote for these mid 70 year old lunatics and it just blows my mind it blows my mind every day that i wake up it's it's it, it, you you couldn't get something that would typify how broken the system is than the 2020 election right or, or maybe i guess you'd go back to 2016 or <laughs> so um so from that perspective it's like I, it's hard to vote and i think i just put on twitter the other day like I, I am getting to the point where i don't know that there's like a great legislative solution because people are so ingrained that I don't think they, they're, they're in such fight or flight mode that they're never going to, they're not going to blink. No one's going to blink. It's like a game of chicken. And they're both just resigned to driving to the end of the road and falling off the cliff. Well, it's funny, actually. Um, did you see the documentary, The Great Hack, about what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica? No, no, I haven't watched it. I know a little bit about, you know, the, the thing, but not. Well, there was one part of it where I can't remember the country they were in. I think it was a Caribbean country. And the the only way the minority, I think it was Indians, minority Indians had a chance of winning would be if there was a low voter, voter turnout with amongst the other group. So they did a campaign to create apathy amongst, amongst voters. And I was like, this is shocking. But actually right now, I think the, I think one of the most important things in politics now is apathy is people is low voter turnout is people saying i've had enough of this because one of the really sad things is there's going to be people out there for example on on the republican side who are going to be voting for trump and there's probably people who might vote for trump who don't realize that it is his buddy that he appointed steve mnuchin who possibly cost them their own house yeah, there will be people who are Republicans, Republican voters, who during the 2008 financial crisis will have lost their house, and he was at Goldman Sachs, and he was part of the part of the group of people that architected that financial crisis. And then afterwards, he became a foreclosure king, and now he's Treasury Secretary. And there are people who are going to happily vote for him, and not realizing that this is somebody who's worked against them, and and, and thinking that it is so important for someone like Trump to win because again, back to their identity. These, I don't think people realize like how little a fuck this essentially, I'd say, a mafia group of gangsters don't care about them. And they really just care about themselves, their friends, and their power. 
and it's really quite i don't know man it gets to me now <laughs> yeah yeah um, no, I mean, I, you know I, on, what one thing i'd love to say is um larkin rose this guy larkin rose he's he put out this video a while back I don't, I don't know if you've seen this video but he basically walks through how government is by all intents and purposes a religion it is absolutely a religion and um, you, you essentially have people that religiously vote for these deities, um, you know, in government that they think they're a part of, like they think they are government. You'll hear it repeated all the time. You know, we're, the, we're the people we are, we are government. It's like, at what point in your life did you start confusing yourself with people who are hearing inside trading rumors and going to the stock market in front of you that learn of stuff in Congress that are backdooring your communications and spying on you? Like, at what point did you confuse them with you? And I, I'd like to understand how that happened, you know? Larkin Rose follows one person on, on Twitter. Do you know who it is? Larkin Rose? On Twitter, well, yeah. I, I know Larkin Rose just from some of the vi- you know the videos and content. I'm I'm not I'm not really I don't follow him on Twitter or anything. So I'm just here now. He he follows one person. It's Ross Ulbrich. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Wow. I've never heard of him, so I've just googled him after you said it. I'm going to sit and watch some of his videos. Um, yeah, look, it's an interesting time. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm definitely going through my own transitional process. I wouldn't say I'm becoming red pilled. I'm almost like. I've almost my, my red pills like like an intravenous drip at the moment. I'm getting a little bit at a time, <laughs> and I go forward, and then I go back, and then I go forward, and then I go back, and 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 doing this publicly is is always a challenge because you know you you, you get challenged in both directions. You people who think you're crazy and people who think you you're not red pilled enough, and but it's certainly a very interesting very interesting time and, and i do feel like everything people like you that i follow have said and other people have said it's almost being proven correct and it's not great that it's happening because ultimately improving correct that people are going to come to harm you know economic harm and maybe other types of harm but but it is definitely now is a really interesting time time to see it all and fuck knows how it's all going to work out anyway listen look as ever this is great really appreciate you coming on it's uh, always good to talk to you I think last time I saw you, we were drinking red wine together in a in a nice building in New York. Um, ho- ho- hopefully, I'll get to see you again sometime. Hopefully, we'll get back flying. I, I don't know when that'll be. But if people do want to follow you, which I recommend they do, because like I say, I think your takes are a lot more practical and and you're not just shouting and ranting. You're actually giving constructive ideas. Where, where do they follow you? Um, it's CSU Wildcat on Twitter, C-S-U-W-I-L-D-C-A-T. It's the, my alma mater's um, mascot. It's long story and very stupid, but, um, but that's the name. And yeah, if you want to go there on, on same name on GitHub, you know, if you're interested in code stuff, just follow me there too. All right, man. Well, listen, hopefully I'll see you soon. Thanks for coming on and yeah, take care, buddy. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. What did you think of that one? It's pretty interesting, right? Pretty cool that company the size of Microsoft has someone like Daniel in there and also that they're building a identity project based on Bitcoin. Very, very cool. Very interesting. I'm going to be taking a look myself. I actually think it's a very neat idea, this ability to have an identity which sits outside of all these major platforms. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with this. I think this is kind of the next phase of the internet. It's kind of what we need to be able to move around the internet with an ID which isn't controlled by the likes of Facebook or Google or, or Twitter. 
also as Daniel is a massive libertarian, I really enjoy his take on centralized planning and the response to coronavirus and the ongoing protests around the world since the killing of George Floyd. So it's really great to get him back on the show. I do want to meet up with him in person. I, I actually really enjoy talking about the libertarian stuff with him. So hopefully, once we're flying again, I'll be back out in the valley and I'll be able to catch up with him in person and do another deep dive on that. But if you've got any questions about this show, it is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to find out more about this decentralized ID program that Microsoft is working on, there's a bunch of stuff in the show notes. Also, I recommend you follow Daniel on Twitter. He's a very interesting character. And if you want to support the show, it's all up on my website. Just head over to whatbitcoindid.com. Click on the support section. Everything you can do to support the show is there. And also, if you want to check out my other show, Defiance, I've got an interesting deep dive into Steve Mnuchin, which is out at the moment. I've done two episodes of four. The first one looking at his time at Goldman Sachs. The second one looking when he bought this bank, IndyMac, and rebranded it and became a foreclosure machine. The next two shows will be coming out in the next two weeks. That's over at defiance.news. Definitely go and check that out. And if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. <laughs>